three books left, and we are through 12. It's been a great journey through the, through the Minor Prophets. It has. So today we're going to be in Haggai, or some people say Haggai. I am not sure where the E comes from between the two Gs, seeing there isn't one, but yeah. we'll just go plain old Haggai, make it sound like a good English word. So we're going to get started in just a minute. Uh, let's see, Josh, uh, especially for folks watching on the internet, kind of fill us in on what happens here on a daily basis and what's our schedule here. All at, right, well. At, at Union Grove Baptist Church, the Union Grove Baptist Church in the Union Grove, Wisconsin. Right. You have to clarify <laughs> that. There's a number of Union Grove Baptist churches. This is the Union Grove UGBC. So uh, Wednesdays, we do our Prophecy Focus Global Update, soon to be changing over to Union Grove Bible Institute. And Pastor will be teaching through uh, the Wilmington's Guide to the Bible. Some of you have purchased that book. Uh, so we're excited about that. So that'll be a little change of pace here on Wednesdays. Same time, though, I believe, right? 6.30 to yep. a little bit before 8. So that's going on on Wednesdays. And then, uh, of course, Sundays we have our, uh, well, also on Wednesdays, I should mention our youth group. So uh, 7th through 12th grade rooted teens meet here every Wednesday downstairs in their room. And then uh, we also have summer quests in the summer for the school-age kids. And that will be transitioning over to Awana coming up September 14th, I believe, is the first night of Awana. So we're looking forward to that on Wednesdays. Of course, Sundays we have our worship services at 9. We have... Uh, a great fellowship time with some coffee and refreshments and then adult Bible fellowship and Sunday school for all ages at 1045. So it's a full morning and we also have a worship service at six on Sunday nights. So there's a lot of busyness, a lot of ministry and a lot of opportunities. Plenty to do. So it's good to see you folks tonight. Uh, we're going to open up in prayer in just a moment. Uh, some of the other things we have, uh, we have our radio and TV shows, our radio shows at 9 p.m. on Saturday evenings, 9 p.m. on BCY-FM, not BCY America, but BCY-FM. So if you have the app from BCY, there's a couple of different settings. You have to go to the FM, not the BCY America. And then we have Prophecy Focus uh, TV show. Uh, I think you're, have you started on, okay. So actually, it's Josh and I right now that are doing uh, the TV show together. So we finally got up to your episodes. Yeah. So that's good. So that's on multiple times. You can check that out on VCY uh, television and uh, check on the schedule. We have three to four shows every week uh, that you can watch there. Uh, tomorrow, for our own people and those watching on the Internet, 2 p.m. tomorrow, 2 p.m. tomorrow, Crosstalk. I'll be on Crosstalk with Jim Schneider. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, one of the books I wrote, uh, Tribulation to Triumph, the Olivet Discourse. So we're going to be, he asked me to come on and talk about that, which I was thrilled to do. Yeah, um, put a lot of time into those books. So uh, that'll be on 2 p.m. tomorrow till 3 o'clock on Crosstalk VCY America. That one's VCY America, not FM. So it's like. Yeah. Try and get them all straight. Lots of them. 107.7, right? FM? FM, yep. Or uh, if you got the app, you can pop it onto VCY America and good to go. Lots of things. I think we need to do some Bible study. I think that's what it's time for. All right. Why don't you pray and we'll get going. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, this night. Thank you so much for bringing us here. And uh, thank you so much for your word. 
and the insight and truth and wisdom we glean from it. Thank you for this series that we've been able to go through with these minor prophets and all the good things that we've learned and historical things as well as application and practical teaching. So please help us now as we go through Haggai tonight. Give us wisdom and open our hearts and minds to your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I think we might actually get through this one. It's only two chapters tonight. This is, uh, I just love Haggai. Haggai, I see there. I said it. it. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Zechariah, actually, the book we'll do next Thursday is is actually got enough material for several months in it. It's got a ton of messianic prophecies and things about Israel. So we'll get as much as we can to you. I'll try to keep the commentary down and just show you the highlights through the book, or we'll show you the highlights. I trust you'll be here. Lord willing, I'll be here. You sound good tonight. I feel good. I'm not touching you, so I'm not going to find out. It's (laughs) fine. Excuse the humor. Anyway, uh, so what we're going to be looking at is the book of Haggai, and we're going to go through some concepts. We're changing our time now as to what these prophets, the last three minor prophets, are looking at. So we're going to explain that uh, in the next slide here. And again, these are slides that most of you have seen, but every time there's a little bit of nuance to it. So, Josh, you know this. Uh, We're going to go through two slides showing the two major captivities where Haggai fits on the timeline, and we'll see that Haggai is a bit to the right of the other prophets we studied on the timeline. So if you want to get us going here. Sure. So the the red line coming down the middle, of course, we've talked about this date many times. 722 B.C., Assyria comes in and plunders and takes captive the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, And you see Haggai, as Pastor said, all the way on the right there, uh, this this next one, this next major date, 586 B.C., Go ahead. Babylon comes in and does the same thing with the southern kingdom of Judah, takes them captive, and they're captive for about 70 years before they come back into the land. And we're going to see they come back in different progressions, but you'll notice Haggai's way over there on the right. So we consider Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are all post-exilic minor prophets. In other words, they were uh, their ministry was during the time after the exile of Israel. All right, so if you look again on the right of your screen, you're going to see again, as uh, Josh just pointed out, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the last three books in the Old Testament are all post-exilic prophets. Again, post-exilic, kind of a fancy way to say after the, uh, after the Babylonian exile or deportation. All right, so if you'll remember, again, just very quickly, 586 B.C. was the last of three deportations taking the southern kingdom of Judah, specifically pointing out Jerusalem, which is the city in the region of uh, Judea. And now they've returned, and Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are going to address some of the issues that existed that, quite frankly, the Jewish people were not getting done. And I don't want to give away the punchline yet, but they're basically going to get on on the back of the Jewish people. It's like, God brought you back to Israel to do a few things. It's time to get busy and get them done because they weren't doing them. So we'll see that in a couple moments as we get going. 
All right, uh, Jess, just go through the, the different regions, please, and a little bit about the two kingdoms, and then we'll okay. zip into Haggai. So this is just the visual of what we just described verbally. Uh, you have Israel in three main sections, Galilee to the north, Samaria there in the middle, and Judea down toward the bottom. Galilee and Samaria were basically the northern kingdom, plundered in 722, and then Jerusalem uh, is down in Judea. That's the southern king- kingdom of Judah, plundered again in 586 B.C. by Babylon. All right, so Josh, uh, if you kind of take us through, I'm going to let you do this whole introduction here, so just take it away and go All right. for it. So the sec- this, we're in Haggai. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Only Obadiah is shorter than Haggai. Uh, it's, it's a very simple and direct literary style. Uh, the content is really divided up into these four messages or four sermons, if you will, four messages that Haggai gives to uh, the people in order to encourage them to do what God has been asking them to do. And frankly, they've been kind of ignoring what God has been saying. They're living in, really in disobedience to him. Haggai comes in to help, help encourage them to do what's right and obey. All right, just a quick note. On your handout are those four different sections. The outline is there. The introduction that we're going through is on your handout. So uh, all of the things that we're going to be talking about are not, but you have the basic handout that will go through the various sectors or sections of what uh, Josh is referring to here. So again, Babylon comes in in 586. The temple is destroyed. This ends this period from Solomon to this point in time, uh, which was this era of temple worship that the Jews enjoyed uh, during that time. And now the temple is gone. And so that that era of uh, national and religious life uh, ends after that. So we move forward in time, and here comes Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, decides to allow almost 50,000 Jews to return to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. And, uh, of course, Joshua the high priest, Haggai, Zechariah are there. These are all contemporaries with uh, some of the other writers as well. Uh, the Levitical sacrifices were soon reinstituted on a rebuilt altar and then they start to lay the foundation of the temple. We can read about that in the book of Ezra. Uh, however, and you read about some of this going on in, in Ezra, you read about some of this happening in the book of Nehemiah as well. The Samaritans uh, did not want to see this happen. And so they were in, in many ways sworn enemies of the Jewish people. They didn't want to see them rebuilding their temple or their walls. And so they began to harass and then there's Persian pressure. So the, the rebuilding of the temple comes to a halt, and that's what Haggai is addressing in his book. So uh, spiritual apathy had set in. So the, the people had been on fire for the Lord. They'd been started. They laid that foundation for the temple, uh, but because of this pressure, they had kind of backed off, and now they were busy building their homes and, and taking care of their needs and ignoring what God had asked them to do in the rebuilding. So 16 years go by, Darius comes into power in Persia, and so uh, God, God raises up his prophets as he always does uh, when his people need to hear something from him. So he raises up Haggai and sends him to encourage the Jews to continue to rebuild the temple. All right, so one, one thing to point out here, <clears throat> when Cyrus gets, he literally, God talks to Cyrus. Now, 
if you've if you've read through this before, at least the text of it, was Cyrus a God-fearing Jewish king? No. no. I mean, he's, he's a pagan. God talks to Cyrus, basically putting in his heart, lays on his heart, listen, send the Jewish people back to Israel. So, again, Cyrus basically beat up what, what empire to come into power. Who was the empire before Cyrus? Who, who took Israel captive? Okay, so going back through, and the, these are those couple of steps Josh went through. So the northern kingdom was taken to what empire, what, what place? Assyria. Assyria, okay? Who defeats Assyria to become the next major empire of the world? Babylon, all right? Who defeats Babylon, i.e., where Cyrus was from, to then take over what Assyria had done, what Babylon had done? What's the next major empire? Okay, we're one before Alexander. Medo-Persians, there we go. All right, so... Persian King Cyrus, who had overtaken Babylon now, now is starting the movement back from the northern regions above Israel to get them back to start doing the work. And as Josh pointed out, we have a major individual named who's going to become operative in everything that happens here. If uh, uh, we asked you what, who was actually the one that had a major influence on the first temple? Well, it would be Solomon. Then the second temple, which is where we're at now. We're going into the second temple period. What is the name of that temple? Who's given, it's actually named, and we're not talking about Herod. He doesn't come on for hundreds of years yet. Who is the key individual, and you've seen the name on the screen today, who is the main person that was basically said this is his temple? Starts with a Z. Zerubbabel, all right? So temple number one is who? Solomon. Remember David's son? David couldn't build the temple, so God says Solomon, his son, would build it. Now you're going to hear about temple number two. The second temple, all of this is going to be, and, and if you, again, if you go through classes or you look it up on the internet or even look at Jewish history, they will refer to the second temple as being under Zerubbabel, all right? So what's going to get, and, and we're not going to get a whole lot into it today, <clears throat> but that second temple gets built, it's done, and here's another one of those dates. 515 B.C. is when the second temple is completed, all right? And actually, it's interesting, even though there's a, a, a significant time period that we're going to be talking about tonight, Cyrus sends the people back to get the temple built. The temple actually, now 586 minus 70, what, what's the date? 515 B.C. But there's actually a significant amount of years where uh, that temple wasn't done. So really what we're going back to is 605 B.C. when uh, uh, the first wave of, uh, of uh, Israelis or Judeans, if you were, were taken up to Babylon. Now that might get a little confusing. We'll try and break it, break it down. But the, the key thing to remember, because you're going to keep seeing this name, Zerubbabel, temple number two, the first 
wave of individuals to come back from up north to start getting that temple done is under Zerubbabel. So that's one of those name, excuse me, one of those names that uh, should start sinking in a little bit because you're going to see it quite a bit. So a question we might have, and I think I, I think I know the answer, but Zerubbabel, is he religious leader uh, or more of a political leader? For All the, the above. Everything. Yep. Okay. He is. He's going to be the and he's, he's dominant as the religious leader, which is why the second temple is going to be basically called Zerubbabel's temple. Even though who's the, who's the king that sent them back originally? Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus is a Persian, part of the Medo-Persian Empire. They took over Babylon, and all of a sudden we have 50,000 Jewish people starting to make their way back, supposedly to work on the temple and uh, the city and so forth, but... We're going to see they got a little bit uh, lax in getting that job done. Yep. All right, go ahead. All right, so Haggai's task from the Lord was to arouse the leaders and the people from their spiritual lethargy to encourage them to continue working on the temple. And I love this, this uh, concept because it's so practical and applicable to us today that we need to be warned at times of spiritual apathy. Uh, the initial success of Haggai and his mission was supplemented by the continued efforts of Zechariah until the temple reconstruction was finished in 515. So there were three deportations from Judah. This is not the, the northern kingdom. This is just the southern kingdom alone. There were these three deportations, 605, 597, and the final one in 586 when the temple is destroyed. And then uh, to help remember that, there's also three returns to Israel. 538 under Zerubbabel, 458 under Ezra, and then again in 445, another wave of Jews comes back to the, their land under the leadership of Nehemiah. All right. Now, on your handout, you're going to see right before the outline, these dates are given. So what I, I encourage you to do, the 586 one, that's operative because that's really the last major time. The temple gets torn down in 586 B.C., the city gets plundered in 586 B.C. Now, the other three dates are important, but the key date, which is why I wanted to put it down, so we have these three waves of the Jewish people coming back. Uh, there's a major, major, major significance to the third return in 445 B.C. Now, we've talked about this uh, many times, but it's one of those facts that might elude some folks. So, what happens in 445 B.C.? Who gives a decree that in 445 B.C., which is going to become one of the historical landmarks in prophecy? 445 B.C., what happens? Who gives a decree? And what's the decree's significance? Anybody remember? I hear a little whispering, so I'm going to take it. I need to go over this just very quickly. I don't want to spend too much time on it. 445 B.C. is the, is the decree that was made by Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes made a, that decree. Why is that decree important? Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. 
when a king makes the, or I'm sorry, let me, I, I think I gave the wrong verse number. It's Daniel 9, make sure I get the right one. Should have that, but I just want to make sure. It's in here somewhere. All right. That's what happens when I use new Bibles all the time. Stick together. All right, Daniel chapter 6, Daniel chapter 9. All right. Uh, let's see, what am I looking for? Daniel 9, 24. All right. It's actually uh, 925 is the verse I'm looking for. I think I said 26. All right. Daniel 9, 9 again, and I don't want to go through this whole thing because we've done it so many times, but Daniel 9, 24 to 27, the most important prophetic passage, I believe, in Scripture on the chronology of the Jewish people, what would happen past, present, and prophetic. Daniel is given this, this uh, uh, prophecy, and in verse 25, Daniel 9, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, Go back to the slide and go back to your handout. 445 B.C. is when that decree was made by King Artaxerxes. This is a prophecy in Daniel 9.25, uh, about 525-530 B.C. So definitely it's prophetic at this point. It's obviously before 445 B.C. And God is telling Daniel... There's going to be a decree that's going to be made, which is literally going to start the prophetic clock moving forward. So he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, the prophecy then is referring to what would take place, which is King Artaxerxes' decree in 445 B.C. That is the only decree out of those three that was given to go back and uh, to build and restore Jerusalem. Not about the temple at this point, this was about restoring the walls that had been torn down, uh, the city that had been plundered and destroyed. So it's very, very specific. All right, he's saying, listen, there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks until what's going to take place, until Jesus Christ comes. So you go from the decree that was made in 445 B.C., you count forward 483 years, and what's the event that should have taken place? Messiah being cut off right there in verse 25, all right? And, and we talked about this before. Remember, I've asked the question, does the Bible ever give you a specific date as to when Jesus Christ would be crucified? And the answer is absolutely. You just read it. 483's F, 483 years after that decree, which was given in 445 B.C., was given, Messiah would be cut off. Uh, you wouldn't be here tonight if you didn't believe that Christ was crucified in a Christian church with a cross behind us, right? So it's operative, and, and this proves it. I mean, it, it, it's not up to negotiation or whatever. It's absolute. You say, well, how come I never heard that before? I don't know. <laughs> uh, here's the thing, folks, and I want to be straightforward on this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get off off subject for just a moment, but I, it, it's a subject that is just, I'm finding over and over again, we just got to keep going here. Uh, how many churches, and now let's just stick to the American scene, how many churches in America 
will teach the prophetic word, i.e. one-third of the Bible. And how many will teach it as written? Well, the unfortunate statistic, and again, I brought this up to you as well, Dr. Thomas Ice, the head of the Pre-Trib Research Center, has brought out that based on his statistical research that about 60% of all Bible-believing churches deny the literal interpretation of prophecy. They just do. I, I made mention of a church, and a few people thought they knew what it was. They, it's not a church, probably, it's not one that I've ever been associated with, so I'll make that clear. There's a church about an hour and 15, hour and a half from here that I mentioned fired their associate pastor for teaching Revelation in, uh, to the youth group. That's a Bible-believing church. They preach salvation the same way we do, and yet they fired a pastor for preaching Revelation. There's another church not too far from here that's been strong dispensational, a good-sized church that's not probably more than an hour away, and now they're basically playing a game of uh, uh, denying that, well, maybe uh, this isn't so important, which means they're going to get away from teaching biblical dispensational truth. There's another church not that far from us that was at one time a good, strong Bible-believing church that refuses to preach prophecy at their church, and it's a good-sized church. So it's like, what in the world's happening around the country? Well, here's what's happening. What's happening is pastors are under the false impression that if they teach prophecy, they're going to split their church, and they're going to lose money, and people are going to walk out the door. So therefore, we compromise and only teach practical things. We don't get into doctrine and so forth because we don't want the people to become discouraged with uh, doctrine. Here's the other part as to why that's unfor the unfortunate problem today. The reason many pastors will not touch the prophetic word is because they don't understand it. I'm, and I'm just being straightforward. I'm not naming names or institutions or churches. I'm telling you the truth. And I made this very plain many a time when uh, we talk about this. Most pastors, where do they go to get trained? Seminary, what else? Bible schools, uh, Bible colleges, Bible universities. And when they go to them, and, and I, I mean, I've been, to a, I've been to a lot of them, and I've got degrees from a good many of them. Here's the issue. When it comes to doctrine, you have 12 major doctrines in Scripture. Most pastors, of course, they go to the undergrad four-year uh, uh, Bible schools, and you know what they get as far as what we've been studying in one-third of the Bible? They usually get one semester of what's known as eschatology or things regarding the end times. They don't know Revelation. They don't know Daniel. They don't know prophecy. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound right. Well, I agree. It doesn't sound right. And that's why we have so much confusion and lack of pastors that are passionate about preaching one-third of the Bible, literally. So, And then you've got all the other mess of, of seminaries and schools around the country that, again, if you ask them how to get saved, they'll tell you how to get saved. They'll get it right. But they do not understand what we just went here in Daniel 9. That's why 90% of Christians have, probably 95% of Christians, if you ask them the question, can you go to the Bible and show me the date of how, when Jesus Christ would come? They haven't got a clue where to find it. So uh, 
Am I giving them a bit of an excuse? Well, okay, well, let's, well, I'll give them that excuse. They haven't been trained. They don't know it. And uh, it's confusing to them. So it's like, well, I don't want to teach something that I don't know. So they stay away from it. So that's why uh, the Bible, and, and I'm going to get off my soapbox in just a minute. But folks, this is why it's, it's so important. And uh, uh, churches that are failing to teach one-third of God's word, uh, those, the, the people are, are basically, they're, I, I mean, it's, it's just not right. They should be getting more than that. So I think enough said, but that's the problem we're facing. And that's why most people don't like prophecy, because they don't understand it. They hear 16 different varieties of this is true, that's true, this is true, that's true. I don't know. You know and uh, it all comes down to this. I'll lighten the mood now. <laughs> so uh, one individual uh, that I was talking to years ago, and uh, it's nothing new. I didn't know this particular theology was around. But uh, he said, listen, I I'll tell you what I am. And I'm like, okay, you know, well, what are you? And he says, I'm a pan-theologian. I'm a pan-theologian. I'm, like, I'm like, I never heard of that one before. I mean, I've been in every school there is to go to, and I've never heard of pan-theology. And he says, well, it's pretty simple. It's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I'm like, okay. So I bet you saved a whole lot of money on Bible school education by going to the pan-theologians that just said, don't worry about it. It'll all pan out in the end. Um, my school bill is a little more expensive than that. But uh, anyway, uh, excuse a little rant, but that's the problem we're facing in uh, the Christian church today, and that's why so many people, if you will, just don't know because the pastors don't know, the teachers don't know. I hate to say this, many of this, the guys that are running the seminaries don't know, and, and it's just unfortunate. So again, excuse a little bit of rant, um, but that's why we choose to teach the whole counsel of God and spend time studying it so we get it right, hopefully. Right, And again, Pastor Rich is not saying he's the end-all, be-all in anything. But we dead sure are not going to discount God's Word just because some sections are a little tougher. We've got to spend a little more time uh, pounding the Scriptures to figure it out. All right, we'll go back to the nice guy named Josh Steele now and uh, take a look at the next slide here if I can get it to come up. This thing is just, uh, I got a... I got one that supposedly have even more kick than this one coming, so we'll see what happens. All right. Oh, I forgot to put the chart up, but they had it on their paper. All right. For those of you watching on the internet, take a quick screenshot. And uh, did you take your screenshot out there? All right. Good to go. Here we go. All right. So we have our timeline. Uh, there's the three basically plunderings of, of Israel. We, we've talked about the 722, the Northern Kingdom, 586. Southern Kingdom of Judah. Haggai comes in right after that, of course, as they're rebuilding. And then you skip ahead um, several years, many years, past the time of Christ to AD 70. Uh, Jerusalem is once again plundered, which we've talked about many times by the Romans this time. All right. There's something missing on this slide. Let's see if anybody knows what it is. For 62.5 points, what year... Did Haggai start his prophecy? Go to your go to your Bible and look at chapter one and verse one. And I'm not turning to it yet. 
It's going to tell you the exact date when Haggai was prophesying. And you say, well, wait a minute. It says, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel. Okay, now I know you all know the second year of King Darius, right? Say what? You're right. It's 520. See, Tony's got it. You got a good study? Oh, it's on the sheet? <laughs> well, there you go. See, there's a good, he, that, that's good. I like that. All right, so he's industrious. All right, he's actually right, and there it is, August 29th, 520 B.C. So when we're looking at that timeline again, we're looking that he's the what? Is he pre or post-exilic? Post-exilic. One of how many minor prophets that preached the post-exilic message? Three. I think we got it. Yeah, we're getting it. Why, George? I think we've got it. We're coming up on the anniversary of this in a few days. Well, there you go. Life is good. Are you throwing a party? No. Are you? Well, I'll go to Dairy Queen. Okay. My wife and I like Dairy Queen. Sounds good. We like these. uh, I'll just tell you what we like. You want to hear? Yeah. I knew they would want to hear about food. Of course. So, uh, yeah, you get, I had my first one today. She's been getting them for weeks. I've just been getting something else. I'm not going to tell you because 60 people will buy me one tomorrow. (laughs) I don't want all that food. But uh, 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 we get what's called a cherry freeze with ice cream in it. Ever at, oh, that's good. That's Cherry good. freeze with ice cream. Now, don't y'all go out and get me one because I can only eat one at a time, okay? But uh, anyway, they're good. You go out and get one for yourself. Cherry freeze with ice cream. Ooh, that's good. Sounds good. Oh, we'll celebrate the Haggai's prophecy. All right, let's get into it. Now we get to the text. So I went through verse 1 here. So in the second year of King Darius, so we know exactly when that is from history, so that's an easy one to figure out. So we're talking about the prophecy kicks off 520 B.C. uh, after, of course, the exile to Babylon. And now I'm going to just give you the summary, and then Josh will take the next couple of verses here. Here's what's happening. The Jewish people, I mean, God does a miracle in the heart of this pagan king Cyrus. He's giving up 50,000 thousand people to go back to Israel and to start working on that second temple. God gets them back there, they you know and and it's like get out there, get that temple built. And our good Jewish friends say, well, you know, I got better things to do today than uh, build the temple, even though God brought them there to exactly do just that. So now because of their defiance, their laziness, whatever you want to call it, God is now going to use Haggai to say, listen, guys, let's get to work. It's like they, had, they were on a permanent coffee break, and this didn't make God very happy. So we're going to see, and that's really what this whole thing does. Now we're going to see a couple of different pieces to this. God is going to really get on the Jewish people. He's going to, and we're going to see, he's going to chastise them pretty heavily here for not getting that second temple built. Then we're also going to go, we're going to see as we get a little bit further into the book in chapter 2, he's also going to be talking about the fourth temple, the millennial temple, which we're going to spend a little time on out of Ezekiel 43 in a little bit. All right, so you said, wait a minute. We went from the first temple 
to the second temple, and then you said the fourth temple, and that's correct. What temple are we skipping? The third temple, because that temple is really not part of God's prophetic program, even though he said it's going to happen. So we had the first temple. Was that a temple that God wanted built? Absolutely. And the, and again, the person that built it was Solomon. Second temple, and uh, I'm going to keep pushing this name now so we remember. The second temple is basically under who? Zerubbabel. All right, very good. Then what's going to happen? Well, of course, we're going to look at in the history in AD 70, the second temple is going to end up getting torn down because of the Jews' disobedience. All right? Uh, hasn't, we haven't had a temple since AD 70. There will be a third temple, and that will be built at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. All right, now here's a couple of facts, and we're going to get to the one fact when Christ actually is going to be in a temple today. Did, was the glory of God present in the first temple, Solomon's temple? Yes. Was God's presence ever present in the second temple? No, is correct. All right, so first temple, yes. Second temple, Jews never got right with God. The whole entire second temple, God's presence was never there. History, Jewish history will tell you, and uh, uh, it's kind of interesting because they kind of fudge about God being in the second temple in some of Jewish history, and they kind of had this little fake thing going to scare people. That's a whole other story. All right, but no presence of God in the second temple. Why? Because Jewish people were disobedient the entire time. The third temple, which will be the tribulation temple, does God's presence ever go in that third tribulation temple? No. Very good. Uh, then this, that third temple is going to come down somewhere, I'm guessing, right at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, because when Jesus comes back, he's going to build what? The fourth temple, all right? Now, when we get to that fourth temple, which is not what we're talking about here, but we will when we get to Ezekiel 43 in a few moments, the millennial temple. So the fourth millennial, or the fourth temple is the temple that will be in place for the 1,000-year period, and then God says it's going to last through eternity. Now, I'm, again, excuse the caveat here, but we, most of you here come on Sunday mornings when we're going through the book of Revelation. We've been talking about the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 through Revelation 22:5. In the new Jerusalem, I'm going to stretch your thinking for a moment here, is there going to be a temple? I'm seeing some yes. I'm seeing some no. Is there going to be a temple in the new Jerusalem? There we go. I think it just clicked. I heard a bunch of people all of a sudden go, no. <laughs> You're right. Is Now, if God, and here's where it gets tricky. When God says in Revelation 21, and we're, we're bringing Revelation into this from Sunday morning for a minute, in Revelation 21.1, he says three things that he's going to build new that are going to last for eternity. It's at the end of the millennial kingdom. The old earth passed away, the old heaven passed away, the old Jerusalem, if you will, passes away. Three things are made brand new. What three things are they? The new what? All right, I heard all three. Yep. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. 
Now, we know the New Jerusalem, and we, we went through this, uh, and, and those watching on the Internet, you can get these messages on, uh, on myugbc.com, YouTube, sermonaudio.com, Spotify, six million other venues. Uh, so it's out there, but, uh, or Facebook Live, it's on our Facebook account as well. All right, so we know there's not going to be a temple in the New Jerusalem. Why is there not going to be a temple in the New Jerusalem? Because God's presence will be there, all right? There's no need for, he just didn't choose to have a temple. But here's an interesting thing. That's the New Jerusalem. Now, and this is where God is, and I know if you read books and theology books and people speculating, you're going to come up with a whole lot of things about, well, what's on the new earth? Who's going to be on the new earth? What's going to take place on the new earth? We know a whole lot about the new Jerusalem because God talks a lot about it in Revelation 21 and 22. But he doesn't talk a whole lot about the new heaven and the new earth. But if God is making a statement, which we're going to see a little bit later tonight, that there's going to be this fourth temple, which is an eternal one. That's before the, this earth, heaven, and um, Jerusalem pass away, but this is an eternal temple. So that leaves two potential possibilities. Because does God lie? No. no. All right, so he's talking about something that's going to be forever. So now we know there's not a temple in the New Jerusalem, so what are the, the last two possibilities? Well, it could be a temple in heaven, but he doesn't talk about anything dealing with that, and he talks a little bit about a new earth. So here, and again, this is sanctified speculation, because if God doesn't specifically say something, it's like we got a few of the pieces to the puzzle, but we don't have the complete puzzle. But what do we know? If there's going to be an eternal temple, it's not in the New Jerusalem, will God's people, which will all be God's people at that point, you and Gentiles, all that have been saved and are part of the eternal uh, state, if you will, with God, where could that temple be? Well, are we going to have access to the new earth? Well, again, sanctified speculation is, yeah, we'll have access to the new earth, you'll find a whole myriad of different opinions on where's that new Jerusalem going to be. Well, there's, uh, and again, we'll get into that next Sunday morning at 9 a.m. here at Union Grove Baptist Church in Wisconsin. Little plug. Um, There's uh, uh, those that believe the new Jerusalem will literally be set on the earth. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Some believe that it's going to hover over the new earth. So could there be that temple, that eternal temple that's going to be on earth? Of course there could be. And God leaves that door definitely open here. So these are things, we'll, we'll work through them, and I've, I've planted some seeds. And by the way, again, when I say sanctified speculation, there are certain things God doesn't say, well, okay, when the new Jerusalem comes down, it's going to sit on the new earth, and we're going to have access back and forth. We'll have our glorified bodies. We'll, we'll move at the sound of thought, and you think about being on the new earth, you're there, and then all of a sudden you want to come back to the new Jerusalem by thought. Bam, you're there, and there's Christ sitting there with uh, 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 all the wonderful things taking place. And all that is not specifically stated. So we try to pull out as much as we can, and God said, what did Paul say? said, I, I went up to heaven. I saw things which are inexpressible. That's the old heaven. I mean, just think about what's going to happen. I mean, 
God, God left a lot of stuff to, uh, I, I don't know, can we say imagination right now? I think so. Yeah, you know, I think it's okay to say that. And God says, listen, I'll tell you all you need to know, Mike. And that's definitely a good argument. So if you didn't hear that, and for those on the internet, uh, what uh, one of our good scholars here said is when you look in Revelation chapter 21, verse 10, it talks about basically the 12 gates, and it talks about the 12 foundations. Well, and uh, 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 Mike happens to be in construction, so this make, would make a lot of sense to him, and it makes a lot of sense to builders. What do you build a house on? A what? A foundation. All right, so it's got 12 foundations. Well, if you have 12 foundations, what are those 12 foundations got to sit on something solid, right? That's, that would be this uh, uh, make good sense. So is it going to be literally sitting on the new earth? Very well could be. Uh, so that is an argument for that. So uh, we will allow you to make some of your own decisions, of course, on that. I don't get dogmatic on things that are... Not dogmatic, but uh, that's definitely a good argument, so thanks for sharing that. That's good. All right. Uh, wow, we're still at verse 1. <laughs> I said we get through two chapters tonight. Why are you slowing me down? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, very good. Josh, you don't talk as much as I do, so I think I'm going to turn it over to you for a bit here. Okay. One thing to keep in mind as we read through the text, something to watch for. And I, I picked this up today as I was reading and preparing for tonight. No less than 25 times in his two short chapters, Haggai affirms the divine authority of his messages. Not only did he introduce his sermons with, this is what the Lord Almighty says, but also he concludes them with a similar formula, declares the Lord Almighty. So you think about that, only two short chapters at least 25 times he makes that statement. Now, all the prophets do this to, as, as an evidence that this is what thus saith the Lord. This is what God is saying. But Haggai seems intent on making sure that the, the people and the readers understand this is not Haggai's message. This is from the Lord. He also sprinkles those expressions throughout the messages. He was fully aware he was God's messenger. So as we're reading through this, watch for those to come up. Starting chapter 1, verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, which is a false excuse, the time that the Lord's house or the second temple should be built. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai by the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? All right, so what's, what's God saying here? He's pointing out that, uh, and again, I, I, I have a problem always picking on our poor Jewish friends, but that's who we're talking about here. So God's basically saying, listen, you guys went home, you bought the best property, you built the best buildings for yourself. 
I sent you back to build my temple, and it's still sitting in ruins. Now, I'm going to do something that everybody's going to enjoy, I hope, because I'm going to show you some pictures, okay? So nothing to memorize here, just enjoy a couple of pictures, some artist renditions of things that had taken place. Now, some of these, and again, uh, they could be first temple period, they could be second temple period, some are mixed, but here's the concept. We're looking at, regardless of what period we're talking about, this is what was taking place. So again, the Babylonians came in, what did they do? They burned the place to, to shreds, they kill a bunch of people, the Jewish people, they take a bunch of Jewish people captive. So you can imagine, and again, uh, the Temple Mount sits on a raised up on the top of what mount? Mount Moriah, all right. Um, let's see, come on, Mr. Clicker, there we go. Now this really is the second uh, temple, this will be after the second temple, basically it uh, was... Uh, portrayed in an AD 70 painting, but this is just, uh, I mean, it's the same kind of thing that took place at the end of the first temple period when the Babylonians came in. This one happens to be one that was done for the Roman group, but it's the same exact thing. They came in, horrible massacres are taking place, people are being killed. The Bible tells us Josephus wrote about uh, the second temple period where the priests literally surrounded the altar up front, and basically this is the, the result. I mean, the, uh, either the Babylonians in 586 or the Romans in 70 AD, uh, they just slaughtered them, threw them over the side of the walls. And by the way, it's a lot taller than uh, uh, it looks there. Uh, <laughs> a horrible time. All right, what else? This is uh, basically an Israeli synagogue, but you can, I, I put this one up here because it's the same concept. When you, and, and that's why, again, and uh, we're talking about trying to get a trip together to go to Israel, probably going to be around March 2024, because basically things are almost sold out right now. So if you can go and you can raise the money, I encourage you to do so, because you will still see a lot of ruins like this around the country. And uh, as soon as the Archaeological Association, if you touch a stone, if you're doing a building project, they make you halt if they think it's even possibly uh, uh, ruins there, archaeological ruins, and, and they uncover them. So this kind of thing is, uh, is brought up all over the country all the time. Uh, this is actually, and some of you will recognize this, and I'm going to put my pointer. You see this big pile of stones? Okay, that's actually, this was, this is today. Uh, this is, uh, uh, this particular pile of rocks actually is from the second temple period when the temple was torn down, thrown over the side of the western wall. The western wall just sits a little bit further down. But these are the ruins, and I mean, you go there today, this is exactly what you're going to see. You look down, let's see if I can get my pointer to work, there it is. All right, you see these, uh, the, a person is about as high as my pointer is right now. So it's very large. These are what are known as the Herodian streets. You can see where the boulders had come down and crushed the streets. So that happened in AD 70 as well. But it's the same concept. You go back to the, the first temple period, it wasn't as dramatic as, as the second temple, but everything was torn down, destroyed, burned up. Uh, horrible times. And again, this is a, a modern day picture. I, uh, I don't remember if I took this one or not, but I've taken similar ones, if nothing else. All right, the uh, southern area, southern steps, which have totally been reconstructed now. 
But again, he's talking about in uh, verse 4, he says, uh, your, uh, the temple lies in ruins. It's, it's messed up. It looked, probably looks something similar to this. So just wanted you to get an idea of what you can still see today in Israel. If you look at the background here, you can, I mean, this is modern-day Israel back here. And right in the midst of modern-day Israel are these massive amount of ruins. So it's, it's just amazing. And, of course, you'll see a lot of things that have been rebuilt, the temple uh, uh, of course, having the Al-Aqsa Mosque and uh, the Dome of the Rock and all that, uh, uh, individual items are there as well. Uh, this is a, another ruin that uh, in 2009, when I first went, didn't exist. This is across the street from the Temple Mount. Uh, I was walking along the side of the street and right by these metal fences here, and uh, I found a little peephole and I looked in and it's like all this stuff was being unearthed. So uh, again, back in the day, during the Babylonian period, during the Roman period, uh, massive buildings that existed that time were destroyed, and now archaeologists are unearthing these things. Now, I don't know why, but I get a real kick out of this stuff. It's like, man, it's like you're looking back several thousand years, sometimes more than that, and, and it's just amazing. Here's the stuff, it's documented, it's there, and it's just amazing. I just, I, I, I get excited about it. Uh, here's, uh, this is actually, have you ever heard of the City of David? All right, now if you look in the background up on top, here's the Dome of the Rock. These are the city walls, which are basically surrounding the Temple Mount. So you come down, and it's a little bit further than it looks here. There's a pretty good uh, uh, walkway, about maybe half a mile between the wall and what you're seeing here. But this is actually the ruins of uh, the city of David. That's where King David had his palace, uh, some of the other things uh, uh, that were associated with that. And a lot of that has been unearthed. You can actually go to the city of David now, which also didn't exist the first time I went uh, less than 20 years ago. But now much of it has been uncovered. So it's, it's just amazing to be able to see those things. All right. Uh, this is a rendition of the... Basically, the second temple, Herod's temple. But again, uh, what God is saying to the Jewish people at this point, and we're going to see it if I ever am quiet uh, as Josh goes through this, what we're going to see is God is going to be a little bit upset with the Jewish people for some of the things that they did, their lack of building, and then God's going to get on them about building a sloppy, not-so-nice temple. Well, if you want to get to the Jewish people's heart, you build a grand temple, so I, I, I just want to tell you about it, but I can't because we don't have time. This, though, whoops, sorry about that. This would be basically the artist's rendition. Of course, there's plenty of artwork that still exists. The second temple, which basically God is telling Haggai to tell these people to get built, was nowhere near as magnificent as this. Herod came in. He was trying to do a favor for the Jewish people as well as win them over to himself and to make points with the Roman government. So in about, uh, um, I don't know, somewhere around 20 B.C., he starts this building project to build the greatest, most magnificent temple ever, and uh, that one is called Herod's Temple. Again, who... Who is, from a, from a biblical standpoint, who's given credit for the second temple? Zerubbabel, all right? And it's still Zerubbabel's temple, and just a real quick piece, and I'll be done, is 
uh, basically a fraction of the size of this one. The Temple Mount was a fraction of the size of what you're looking at here. Herod comes in, reconstructs Zerubbabel's temple into this beautiful, massive temple that eventually came down in AD 70. All right, make a little bit of sense? All right, pictures help me. All right, Josh, take it away. All right, well, let's start down in verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So the Lord exhorts the people to reflect on their conduct in view of the present poverty. Give careful thought to your ways. What he's saying literally is set your hearts on your ways. Four other times Haggai wrote, give careful thought to, uh, talking about their hearts. They needed to reappraise their perverted priorities and give preeminence to God and their relationships with him. What they had done was deplorable and it was also fruitless. They were spending all their time and energy building their own homes instead of building uh, the temple. Verse six, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. And I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. All right, so what's the practical application here? What God's basically saying is he's... he's brought judgment among the Jewish people. He's like, you're working, you're sowing, you're planting, you're doing all these things, but I'm taking it away from you. I'm giving you rotten crops. I'm making you suffer. And it's because you failed to do what I called you to do. So God is chastising the Jewish people for their failure to do what they should be doing. So here's a powerful three words. Consider your ways. Now that's very practical and uh, I think very applicable to us today. It's like, what are you doing? Have you considered what you're doing? Why you're doing it? What is your purpose in life? What is your worldview? Which we've been talking about in Sunday school, uh, adult Bible fellowship in the adult class in here. Consider your ways. Are you doing things, everything you do, is it 100% dedicated to God? Or are you doing things on your own with your own motives, your own thoughts? God said, go back, build my temple. And they said, I got better things to do. So God says, consider your ways. Okay. Verse 9. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. What happens when God brings drought? What is he saying? Nothing grows. Yeah, nothing grows. It's a judgment. When God withholds water, he knows it's going to wipe them out. So he's very specific. He's saying, listen, I'm, I'm withholding the dew from you. I'm withholding the rains from you. You're going to suffer unless you get busy and do what I told you to do. We could talk about child rearing here, couldn't we? Yeah. The punishment always needs to be worse than the act of disobedience. 
Did you catch that? Not real popular in today's society. <laughs> uh, and by the way, don't overreact either. Um, we don't want any kids getting hurt. That's not what I'm talking about. But when you punish, and God says, when I'm punishing you, it's going to hurt a whole lot worse than you guys getting yourself in gear, getting down to Jerusalem and getting that temple built. If you don't want to eat, fine. Go to bed without supper if you don't do what we tell you to. You don't get your homework done, maybe you're not going to eat till tomorrow morning. Just a thought. I'm not making any points here. <laughs> most, of, most of the folks here tonight, by the way, are... Uh, uh, your kids are grown, but you do that to your grandkids, okay? Um, <laughs> all right, go ahead. All right, verse number 12, the response. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Do you see a shift? Yeah. Big all right. It's kind of like, how can we relate this to you? It's kind of like uh, you go to your boss if you're still working, you go to your spouse, you go to your friend, and they say, okay, here's, here's what time of day it is. If you, want, if you want to eat tonight, go out and mow the lawn or you're not eating tonight. I tell that to my wife all the time, get them. <laughs> No, and I, no, you, I'm going to break the tension again. Okay. You know what Valerie does almost all the time and I don't do it? No. I just told you. Mow the grass? Yeah. Oh. She actually does. She likes mow. I don't know that she likes it, but she always does it. So she's a good, good girl. I like her. Works out good for you, apparently. It does. It's great. I go, I go in my air-conditioned house. I do my studying, and she's out there cutting the lawn, and... Now, I got some people right now saying, he's a rotten husband. <laughs> well, I don't know. She likes doing it, so I want to make her happy. I got boys to do mine. So. Really? Yeah. I used to. Yeah. In fact, I just saw my boy walk back and forth, but that stinker got married, and he doesn't do it anymore. He doesn't come over and mow the grass? No. no. Well, what are you going to do? All right, let's move on. <laughs> Verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. All right, so we're going to go into chapter 2. So have we progressed? Have, has God gotten their attention? Yeah. All right. And uh, from the practical side, think about this. If God wants to get your attention, Christian, do you think he has an ability to do that? Oh, yes. Absolutely he does. So um, don't fight God when he's, when he's blowing in your ear, so to speak, and it's like you know you're supposed to be doing something. Uh, probably best to uh, obey and not to run from God. Ask jo Remember when we studied Jonah a few weeks back? How'd Jonah fare when he said no to God? Yeah, he's still wiping spit of the whale, or the big, oh, I said whale, shame on me. He's still wiping spit from the big uh, fish off of him after that event, but uh, uh, if God, if you believe God's called you to do something, tr don't run. Uh, he'll, he'll find you. He's pretty good at that. All right, go ahead. Chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, 
the word of the Lord came to Haggai by the, pro- uh, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Hoo-hoo. All right, so you've been called to build a nice temple, and what's God's idea of their building skills here? Yeah, he's not real happy with what's with, with what the work that they're doing, so he's going to give them a little more encouragement here. Tony, I don't know if I'm working or not anymore. Okay, go ahead. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So I had an interesting evening uh, yesterday. So I was visiting a family. They live on a on a farm, and uh, <laughs> it was very interesting what uh, one of the one of the owners stated. And uh, he'd been he basically been farming all his life, and uh, made it very clear he actually he was working when I got there, and I was trying to folksy with him. And he says, "No, I put out my hand to shake his hand." He says, "No, you got to work." <laughs> and I was like, "He's just kidding with me, of course," but. Uh, I'm like, uh, so how do you enjoy farming? And he says, been 50 years of misery. <laughs> but, but what is it? It's, it, it's old-fashioned what? Work. It's work. Folks, uh, uh, life isn't always easy. we got to work. Ever since Adam's sin, boy, we gotta, we got to put the nose to the grindstone and work away. And God's making that plea here. So it's a good, good thing to work. All right, I'm gonna. I don't know if it's time for a new battery or I'm dead here again. All right. Oh, I'm not see. Did I skip? Uh, just read verse six okay. and seven off. So Haggai computer. two verse six. For thus says the Lord of hosts: Once more, it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come. And they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. All right, so we're going to, and we've got about seven minutes. I wanted to get into this a little bit. Now, in verse 7, if you got your Bibles open because we skipped one, here's the thing. We're going from them building the second temple. Now, as God often does in Scripture, he's going to pop all the way ahead to the millennial kingdom. So he's talking about the present. Now, bam, he's going to, to super prophecy mode. So he's talking about, I'm going to shake the nations. I'll shall come in desire of all nations. I will fill this temple with glory. All right. When is that going to happen? When is the, the temple actually going to be filled with God's glory? So this is, again, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 46, chapters 40 to 46, Talk about the millennial temple, the one that will be there for a thousand years. So I want us to quickly look at this because, again, we've already, I believe, agreed that, that the second temple, God's presence wasn't there. The third temple, which is a tribulation temple yet to come, 
his presence will not be there. Now we're talking about the temple in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 8 and 9, where, where the Messiah, also known as the branch, will come back at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, build this massive temple, which we're not going to get into all of that, but uh, someday we'll do a, a study on those six chapters. But here's the, the, the important part. When does God's presence come back to the temple? So we know this is not that second temple because God's presence never went there. This is referring specifically to the millennial temple. Go ahead. Uh, Ezekiel 43 now. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the visions which I saw by the river Chabar, when I, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate, which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. All right, just uh, I, I zipped ahead. So two things. Verse four: the glory of the Lord came into the temple. Again, that is an absolute statement. When Jesus Christ comes back, He will build the fourth temple. Not the rapture. Now we're talking about the millennial kingdom when He literally comes to the earth. He will touch down. He'll do, do a whole bunch of other things, but he'll build that fourth temple, and he will literally sit in it, so the glory of God will be in it. Then, come on, Mr. Clicker, there we go. Uh, and then it says it again in the verses that Josh read, and I think we're up to verse 8, correct? Is that where you're at? Uh, number 6, actually. We're All right, verse six. go for it. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings in their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost, with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me. Thanks and I will dwell in their midst forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple, the whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. All right. Let's see. Whoops, where are we at? Oh, there we are. Right there. All right. So, Ezekiel 43 then, speaking of the millennial temple. So, in Haggai chapter 2 and uh, the previous verse we looked at, He's referring again to that which is in the future. All right, we're almost out of time, so let's just keep going here. So back in Haggai now, chapter 2, verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, 
if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. All right, so let's, let's stop for just a moment here and get to the practical application. So now if you look at the Old Testament law, basically the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, again, how many commandments are there in the Old Testament law? 613, all right, so 613 commandments that were underneath the Mosaic law. Everybody, for the most part, knows there were how many commandments that most people know about? Ten. Ten, okay, ten major commandments. Then when we look at the totality, which most people don't go to, there are literally 613 of them. So what is God saying here? Inside the Mosaic law, it makes it very, very clear what makes something unclean so he's smacking the jewish people who know those commandments and if you study the torah or the pentateuch which are the first how many books of the bible the first five books of the bible you'll read about these various things which we're not going to go to right now so he's pointing out you guys know better you're the priests you're the leaders you know the law and they, they, they answered correctly. He says, okay, you got that right. You got that right. And now he says, listen, how about you guys? How's your heart? Are you following me? Are you doing the right thing? And uh, he's kind of using kind of a backhanded, circuitous route to get to them and kind of smack them upside the head a little bit there to get their attention. All right, let's uh, pop in. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days, when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. All right, so let's stop again very quickly. What's the percentage of loss based on their disobedience? About half, 50%. All right, you know, he's like... You guys want to keep playing hardball with me, keep denying what I've told you to do, I'm going to cut your production down 50%. So, again, God is, he's holding them accountable. And it's, it's a good biblical principle. You've got to be held accountable. Again, if, uh, and here we go back to that basic principle, if the punishment isn't worth then the pleasure of doing wrong, what do people do? Just keep doing it. Right. Why, why, why is the murder rate, how'd you get me off in the murder rate? I don't know. Why is the murder rate sky high in uh, all major urban areas right now? Because the penalty is nowhere near as severe as the pleasure these pagan knuckleheads get from killing people. You see, you shouldn't say pagan knuckleheads in church. Okay, don't ever do it. Uh, uh, but it's true. These are individuals that have no regard for human dignity, no regard for human life. They're killing people right and left. You're watching on the news every single day, and what happens? They just keep doing it. Why? Because the government says we're not going to hire enough cops to be on the street to protect you, as Genesis 9 said we should for our government. Okay, that's enough. I can't keep going. But uh, uh, you get the point. If the penalty isn't worth and the pleasure people get from doing wrong, they're going to keep doing wrong. 
I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. So they got punished and still didn't get it. Yeah. That's pretty hard-hearted. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet, the vine, the fig, the tree, pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. The horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. All right, two more slides and we'll quit. So the overthrowing of chariots, the fall of horses here and their riders indicate that this change in world government will be military as well as political. In the confusion of this great battle of Armageddon at the Lord's second coming, many a man will turn the sword against his own brother. Verse 23, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring a seal of royal authority or personal ownership, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. All right, now I gotta just, if you gotta go, you gotta go, understood. But uh, we try to give you a 15 minute interval between 7.45 and 8 so I can fudge a little bit if you don't mind, but if you gotta go, understood. So this is an operative, huge messianic, or a, a, a well, it's messianic prophecy as well. In that day, what is that talking about? Anytime that we talk about the day, in that day, what are we referring to? The what? Tribulation, right, tribulation time. Uh, again, it can be talking about the seven years or it can be talking about the day of the Lord. We're talking about the, the tribulation time and right when Christ returns. So here's what God's saying. He's talking about things that are going to be taking place. So in that day, says Lord of hosts, I will take you, my servant, What's going to be happening here? Now, I've made this statement. When you go to Joel chapter 3, the day of the Lord, as it is here, expands into, okay, and we've given you three definitions. Most of you have been to all these classes. Three different, not definitions, but three different pieces of the day of the Lord. It can refer to the entire seven-year period. It can refer to the single 24-hour day when Jesus Christ returns at his second coming. And here... As in Joel 3, a, a similar passage, it's talking about some things that are going to happen. He's basically talking about Zerubbabel having authority during what time period? He's talking about the millennial kingdom here. So the, this has actually had some confusion where, uh, um, and again, this is I'm going to confuse you right now, so you're going to have to keep coming back to get the whole story. But uh, there, we talk about King David. Will he have a place of authority in the millennial kingdom? He will, okay? And that's other passages that I don't even know if we've taught him yet here. He's going to have an authority place. God's telling Zerubbabel he is also going to have a place of authority in the millennial kingdom. By the way, are you going to have a place of authority in the millennial kingdom? Yes. You are. In uh, Timothy, Paul told Timothy, listen, uh, uh, you will rule and reign with who? When's that going to happen? It's not happening today. It's not going to be during the tribulation because we're up in heaven. When's it going to be? During the millennial kingdom. All right. So these are things to look forward to. You say, man, I got a boring job today. Woo, we're going to rule and reign with Christ. 
You say, what does that mean? We'll find out. <laughs> so things to look forward to. It's exciting. Yeah, you're all going to get promoted someday, and God's got a wonderful place for all people who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, Josh, uh, would you do me one favor? In one to two minutes, if somebody's watching tonight, maybe somebody even in our midst tonight, in order to know that uh, heaven's going to be their home someday, would you mind giving the gospel, the great sure. news of uh, how to get to heaven real quick? Love to do that. So it's, uh, we have to understand, first of all, that we have sinned against God. We've broken his laws. And uh, the penalty, the punishment for that is death or separation from God forever in a literal place called hell or the lake of fire. Uh, God knew that was our case, that we couldn't meet the standard of perfection required to enter heaven or eternity with him. And so he devised a plan and came up with a way so that we could uh, escape that judgment by putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who came down to earth, lived a sinless life, was put to death on a cross, and then buried and rose again, defeating death, sin, and hell in his resurrection. And he sits now resurrected next to the Father in heaven. And God's plan is that if we would, would understand those things and believe them to be true by faith and faith alone and put that faith in Christ alone, uh, he, through his love and grace, would give us the gift of eternal life. And it really is that simple. There's really nothing to do. There's not a formula. There's not a special uh, event or something that we have to take part in other than placing our faith in Christ alone. Because he died for us. He was buried three days rose again and paid for our sins. He did it all. It's all, in, it's all in Christ. And you just have to receive it by? By faith. All right. Well, if you've never done that, we invite you to do that uh, right there at your home or wherever you might be. Uh, boy, just by faith, receive that free gift. What a wonderful, wonderful change it's made in our lives. Not to say it's going to be a bed of roses as a Christian, but boy, it's pretty good to know that when you die, heaven will be your eternal home. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Josh, would you close us out, please? Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the gospel and the beautiful message, the simplicity of it. We pray for those listening and uh, for, uh, to us now, Lord, as perhaps uh, their heart has been touched by that message. I pray that you'd just encourage them to consider their own eternity and uh, that they might place their faith and trust in Christ, Lord. We thank you for Haggai and the messages that, that he gave and the writings that we have here. Help us to be able to apply these things, not just learning the historical, historical and uh, the future things, but also the, the good application of uh, considering our hearts, Lord, as believers. Help us to consider where we are, consider our hearts, and as, as we do that, help us to make the changes uh, with your strength. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, folks, for being here. Have a great night.